It's good to see you. Uh, so many of you look so nice this morning. Uh, it's great to have you. Uh, my name's Brandon. They give me the privilege of uh, being uh, one of the leaders here at Stone Point, and uh, we're so glad to have you. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Uh, as you're turning, I just want to kind of share a story uh, uh, that I've heard from uh, many years ago. There's a guy, uh, his name was Dr. Howard. Uh, he actually was uh, from Australia, was a traveling evangelist, and he would go around to local churches and he would do what we'd call a revival. Y'all, if y'all might remember, if you grew up in church, a revival, you, they would start like on a Sunday morning, they'd go through a Wednesday night. Well, he had preached a, a very intense sermon on Sunday morning, and he did it all about sin and uh, sin's power over the believer. And afterwards, uh, a group of men kind of got huddled uh, in the, the pastor study. They called him in and said, hey, Dr. Howard, we, we'd like to visit with you a little bit. Uh, so they call him into the room and they say, hey, listen, we don't want over the next handful of days for us to talk so much about sin. Uh, we, we really think that if you talk about sin, then that's going to have a propensity possibly to lead our kids to a more rebellious lifestyle. If they have an awareness of what sin is and the corrupt nature of our humanity, we don't really want that. And so over the next handful of days, we want to steer a different direction. And at once, he kind of went, pulled out in, uh, of his duffel bag a little prescription pill bottle. And he says, okay, I want you to look at this. He says, suppose this prescription pill bottle uh, said, said the words, on here uh, that you realize that this was strychnine. And he says, suppose it was strychnine. And then suppose right below that, he says, you've got another word. And he says, it's poison. He goes, wouldn't that give you an awareness that you probably should stay away from that? And the men looked and said, yeah, I agree, we agree. He said, well, what if I were to take another label and just to stick it over the top of it and said it was essence of peppermint? He goes, would that be ludicrous for me to to, to, to take the label and change it such that somebody would grab this and that they would think that it was essence of peppermint. He goes, would that, would that be a problem? And which all the men shook their head in agreement. He goes, such is the matter of sin. He said, let me explain something to you guys. If y'all want me to stay here over the next handful of days, he said, you need to pay very close attention to what I'm going to say. He says, if I'm going to stay, he goes, the... The milder I make the label in the next handful of days, the greater the danger of the poison. He goes, if you, you want me to call things what it is, I'll do that. But if not, I'm not your guy. Now, the reason he said that is simply because he knew that there was a problem with our sin nature. And as we dive into Romans chapter 6, we also become aware not only of our sin problem, but Paul is also making the case that we can be free of our sin problem. And so over the course of uh, the last handful of weeks, we have become aware of a handful of things. One, we become aware of man's depravity. Paul says, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, we all have the wrath of God being revealed against unrighteousness. He then says, not, there is not one righteous, not even one, but then he gives us a hope. And that hope is that we can experience a new life in Christ and that we can be set free from sin. Uh, in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and following all the way to 6, which we covered last week, he says, and as you are identifying with Christ um, and, and his goodness, he goes, you don't continue to sin that grace would increase because you have been crucified with Christ and you live and you walk in a new life with Christ. So he's picking up on that same idea as he continues the theme of his letter to the church of Rome. And I want you to see it today uh, where he continues this in verse 7. And this is what he says. For one who has died has been set free from sin. 
And really, that's the heart of his message. Now, I want to show you just what the heart of the message was from last week. And it's simply this. Before Christ, we were dead in sin. But as followers of Jesus, we are now dead to sin. So that's what Paul was saying. Before Christ, we were dead in our sin. And so we were dead in our trespasses. We were alienated, estranged, strangers, aliens, orphans in the world. We were enemies of God. But yet then, because of Christ and his loving kindness, he adopts us. He redeems us. He calls us sons and daughters. And we are no longer dead in sin, but we now live a, dead, a life dead to sin. So we are set free from the bondage and the slavery. That's what he means in verse 7. So look at it. For when he says, for one who has died has been set free from sin, he's just saying you've, you've died to your old nature. The flesh is what we're going to call it today. And so as you're dead to your old nature, Paul's making the assertion that you and I have identified with Christ, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. The old is gone and the new has come. That's what he's building on to. He continues on in verse 8, and he says, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. Friends, if you have your Bible, you can underline verse 8, because that is the future hope for the believer. Now think about this. If we have died with Christ, that means Christ was crucified on the cross on the center, as a sinner uh, in the place of a sinner's stead. He was buried in a tomb of Joseph of Arimathea on the third day. Not the first day, not the second day, but on the third day. Everybody say third day. He rose again to a new life. We now identify with Christ and we have been set free from sin because of Christ and his life. Um, that's the idea of a resurrected life. That's what we have our hopes set on. He goes on in verse 9. He says, and we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again which is really cool. He doesn't die multiple times for our sin. He dies once. He pays all the just penalty that is due for humanity's sin on the cross the first time. He's raised from the dead the first time, and that happens so that death no longer has dominion over him. Death no longer has dominion over him. Death no longer has dominion over the believer in Christ. That's why Paul, when he writes the church of uh, Corinth in 1 Corinthians 15, which is the latter part of his letter, his first letter to the church of Corinth, he makes the case that our faith is not futile and that our gathering is not in vain. And the reason why is because of Christ. Now what Paul is asserting here in 1 Corinthians 15, and I'll show you the latter part of it in a second, he's just basically saying, if Christ didn't die and Christ wasn't resurrected, and he goes, you and I are the most to be pitied. He goes, our gathering would be useless. We, we, we actually would be fools to gather if Christ didn't die and he wasn't resurrected. But because he did die and because he was resurrected, he goes, we can gather with great hope, we can gather with great vigor, and we can celebrate because of what Christ has accomplished. And he goes on, though, and he says, and what's incredible is that Christ is actually going to cause an even greater thing to happen. And he says in the next life, uh, there's going to be the kingdom of God established. He's going to have the wedding feast, which the bride of Christ, that would be namely us as believers, are going to be united with Christ, our bridegroom. And when that happens, he goes, you're going to see us have new bodies. We're going to be resurrected in a new life. Now, what Paul was saying to the church of Rome is that happens because of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And what Paul was saying to the church of Corinth, it happens because of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, namely what occurs at his death, burial, and resurrection. Check it out. Here it is in 1 Corinthians 15, 
Uh, I'll put it for you up on the screen if you want to turn there, uh, and you're really good. You can do that as well. But in verse, 50, uh, verse 53, he says, For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. So he says, because of Christ, he goes, one day we're going to get a new body. This mortal body that's corrupted in the flesh is going to be new. The perishable, the one that's going to fade away, will one day be imperishable. And he says, and here's why. And look what he says. Because death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? He asks a question. Oh, death, where is your sting? And he goes on in verse 56, the, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, that's when we would agree and we would use a term that uh, means agreement, which would be amen. That's when we get, you know what? That's worth agreeing to. That's when we say amen. Everybody say amen. amen. Why? Well, because the the perishable puts on the imperishable. Why? Because Christ has swallowed up death. So before death, there is no victory. There is no hope. There is no eternal life apart from Christ. So the reality is he swallows up death. There is no, no, there is no sting. Why? Because of the victory that is offered through our Lord Jesus Christ. He closes the latter part of this letter, and this is what he says in verse 58, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Here's what he says. Because of Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, our gathering is not futile. Our gathering is not in vain. We don't have to be pitied because Christ swallowed up death. He gave us victory in the cross and we can walk in a new life in Christ. And that is the climax, the crescendo of this entire narrative. And then he tacks something on. And what's incredible, the tack on there, he just says, and because of such a great salvation, because of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, what does he say? He says, you should be living in a way that's steadfast and immovable. The implication is what Paul is writing to the church of Rome. What he's basically saying is simply this. If Christ died and you've been uh, united with him like that in his death, if you've been resurrected to a new life in Christ, then he goes, the implication is, is you ought to be steadfast and movable, abounding in hope, and people ought to see a difference in the way that you live your life. That's what Paul is writing. That's what he's encouraging the believer to know and live. The wrath of God, which is being revealed against unrighteousness, is no longer what is judging you. You're no longer bound to your sin and your flesh and the destruction that is caused through those things. He goes, now you can live as a part of a new and a living hope, a way that has been paved through you, to, uh, for you through Christ and the cross. He says, because of that, he goes, you can now be dead to sin because you were alive in Christ. That's why he goes on in verse 10. Look at it. He says, for the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
So what he's saying is simply very clear. He goes, just as Paul would encourage the church of Corinth to live for Christ, to be steadfast and immovable, that's the hope of the believer now. That's what Paul is encouraging the church of Rome to be about, to consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus, to be immovable, to be steadfast. Uh, That word consider there um, in the ESV, which is what I'm reading, is a present tense verb. It's a present imperative, which simply means the here and now. It's an active verb that you and I always are considering, considering ourselves dead to sin. So what he's saying is, he goes, you're not dead to sin just the moment that you trust Christ. But he goes, you consider yourself dead to sin from every present tense imperative moment after that. That you continue to walk and you're established in God's faithfulness and you are free from the rebellion of your sinful flesh and that old nature inside of you. What he's in essence saying is that there's a point that you are no longer corrupted by your sinful desires, that you're no longer living the way that you used to live prior to knowing Jesus. Y'all remember uh, the childhood narrative, Hansel and Gretel? You remember how they found their way back? They dropped breadcrumbs. That's the goal, right? If you were to follow the breadcrumbs of your faith and you were to look back, you ought to be able to see a distinct difference from the day that you trusted Christ and the day that you grow up into maturity. That's what Paul is saying to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians 4. You're no longer like children tossed to and fro by every crafty and cunning, deceitful scheme or doctrine, but then you grow up into the head. That is Christ. You grow up into maturity. That's the point of what Paul is saying. There's a point in which the believer in Christ is sure-footed. They're immovable. They grow up into Christ. Uh, Paul would say it to Philippi in a different way, in which he would just say, um, you, are, um, you are to grow up in your salvation with fear and trembling. That's the idea. That's what Paul means here. He goes on in verse 12, uh, and he's going he's gonna to throw in a therefore. So as a result of what he's just shared, here's what he says. Let not sin, therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. That the word therefore is just drawing a conclusion based off of the fact that we're dead to sin and alive to Christ. He goes, you should no longer obey the former passions of your youth. You should no longer be bound by sin's domination in your life. That's the implication here. Sin should no longer be your master if you are walking in a new life in Christ. You should no longer do what I did as a teenager and go, you know what, I see sin before me. I can't wait to sin because I know that God's all forgiving. So I'm going to sin and then I'm going to say, God, I hope you'll forgive me. That's why Paul says, should we continue to sin that grace would increase? 6.1, he says, by no means. By no means. Why? Because the mark of maturity is, is that you are now dead to sin, alive to Christ, and no longer obeying your former passions of your youthful, lustful, old nature. That's why he continues this thought in verse 13. So do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So he goes, you have a choice. You can use what God's given you for unrighteousness or for righteousness. And I'm going to tell you a story. You can go look it up for your own. You can fact check me. 
Uh, but in the 1400s, there were two brothers that were duking it out, literally, for dukeship. Um, you had Edward and you had Reynald. Um, they were fighting for what we now know as uh, modern-day Belgium. I don't know about you, but wouldn't you love to be the emperor of Belgium? Um, they have good waffles. and um, They were duking it out, and, and through a, a skirmish and a battle, Edward actually took over the dukeship of, of this area over his brother, Reynald. Now, Reynald had a nickname uh, that in Latin meant fat. Uh, he was named Crassus. And they would call him Crassus because he was morbidly obese. And when uh, Edward takes uh, over the dukeship of what we know as Belgium today, he took Crassus, his brother, and he had him put in a chamber in which they built walls around him. And he was not locked or bound. There were no bars uh, through the windows. Uh, but there was one door that Crassus could have escaped from had he had discipline in his life. Uh, but the problem was is that he was so obese that not only could he hardly move, but unless he disciplined himself in such a way to be able to escape through the almost normal door that was before him, he would be a slave to his passions. Now, people would say that Edward was cruel, um, and Edward would say, I'm not cruel at all. All I'm doing is giving my brother dainty morsels and delicate treats, in which if he chooses to eat, he'll be enslaved. But if he chooses to restrict himself, he is a man who is free. But day after day, Edward would send uh, Reynald treats, and Reynald could not help himself. And it would be 10 years before his brother uh, Edward was actually killed in a battle that he was uh, incarcerated by the walls around him and the food that he ate. He could not resist the temptation of food. And so he was so obese that he stayed that way until 10 years later they tore the walls down around him, is what they would say in history. Now, I think that's what Paul is saying here. I think Paul is saying when you uh, are using your members uh, uh, as instruments of unrighteousness, he goes, you, it means that you're not refusing the dainty morsels and delicate treats of your past. But he says, I encourage you to use your members as what? Righteous. So think about what he's saying here. He's basically saying there are ways that God has blessed us uh, in our physical yet mortal bodies that could be used for his righteousness. Perhaps your eyes. Think about them, what they represent. Uh, he says that we can set our eyes on things above. Uh, we can use our eyes for purposes that are honoring and pure. Or what? We can use our eyes for things that are not wholesome. I think there's many people in our culture that choose to use their eyes for things that don't honor the Lord. I think that's a real struggle in our culture, uh, but our eyes simply represent what we look at and uh, oftentimes what we choose to see. Uh, it's not just our eyes, though, is it? It's also our ears. Our ears can be a challenge for many of us. Our ears oftentimes lend themselves to things that are not only impure, but also lend themselves to the slander or the gossip of others. It's sometimes in our car, we can choose to listen to things that are wholesome and that build up, or we can choose to listen to things that are negative and that tear down. Uh, we can choose to use our eyes and our ears for things that promote the kingdom of God, or uh, we can use our ears for things that promote the kingdom of self. 
What about our mouths? What we say? I don't know about you, but perhaps one of the hardest things for me to control is my mouth. Um, You can use it for gossip or slander. Um, You can use it for the tearing down, or you can use it for the building up. Isn't it interesting that that Jesus even talks, though, further about that? Uh, He he also talks about our wills, uh, the seed of our emotions, um, our heart. You know, one of the things that Jesus says about our our wills, our decision-making, our heart, um, is he says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth will what? Speak. Um, Our heart, our will, the seed of our emotions oftentimes um, reveals what we love. And what we love oftentimes are things that we either treasure or it's also things that we will say as a result of our heart. What about our hands? Our hands ever cause us to do things that um, aren't God-honoring? Think about that for just a second. Uh, What's the difference between, in Genesis 11, a group of people with their hands built a tower called Babel, um, that God ultimately was not pleased with. They said, hey, come, let us make a name for ourselves. How do you think they did that with their hands? They built a tower. Friends, you ever think that we're maybe building a kingdom on earth that won't last? And we just need to be careful what it is that we're doing with our hands, um, what, it, what our intent, our purpose is. Um, listen, our hands can build a kingdom for you or your hands can promote and build a kingdom for God. I think it's something we always have to, to check. We always have to pay attention to. What about our feet? Where, where do they cause us to go? Isn't it interesting that we should be paying attention to where our feet go and, and what it is that we take part of? Because oftentimes our feet will lead us to places that our hands partner with. Isn't it uh, an amazing thing to think that Jesus actually said, uh, he says that I am the way, the truth, and the life. When, you, when he's saying that, he's not just talking about the means of salvation, which is true. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. But think about where life is found. It is found through, through Jesus. That's why in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 and 6, it says, Trust in the Lord with what? All your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, but all your ways acknowledge him that he will make your path straight. If, if friends, if we're in control and our feet and our hands and our mouth and our eyes and our ears are in control, I don't know about you, but our path's not always straight. It seems to be a little bit windy, seems to involve some terrain and off-roading. Not always a, a fun trip, although we are mesmerized by terrain and off-roading, aren't we? Especially if you're a dude in the room, right? But listen, that's not the way that God intends your spiritual life to be lived. That we also should control our minds, Isn't that what Paul is talking to in Romans chapter 12, where he just talks about our minds being transformed, being renewed? See, our our mind is huge. Our heart, our wills, our emotions. The point is, is that Christ has died and purchased us for a reason, and that is so that our members can be instruments for righteousness. And you and I have to choose. Are we going to be like old Reynard? Reynard. Reynold? Uh, or in crassus, or are we going to uh, be free of some of those things? That's the question that you have to ask. Am I going to use my members for unrighteousness or for righteousness? That's why Paul writes to the church of Galatia. Look what he says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. Uh, kind of towards the end of his letter, he just says this, For freedom, Christ has set us free. And then look at what he says, Stand firm, therefore. Have you heard that one before? 
and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Paul's saying when Christ has died for you, like don't continue to go back as a dog returns to its vomit. He goes, at some point, move forward. He goes on in the latter part of this same uh, chapter in Galatians chapter 5. He says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So the flesh is the old nature. Walking in the Spirit is the new nature in Christ. Look what he says in verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, meaning they, they headbutt. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for they are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. So the old nature, who you and I were before Christ, competes with the new nature, who we are to be in Christ. That's why he goes on in verse 18. But if you were led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. He goes, if Christ lives in you, he goes, you're not bound to 10 commandments or 613. Why? Because Christ lives in me. Guys, do you know what keeps me from murdering somebody? It's not that I go to Exodus 20 and go, you know, it says, I shall not kill. It's that God's spirit lives in me. And it's because God's spirit lives in me, I can know the moral code, I can know the law, but that's not what leads me and guides me. It is his spirit that leads me to truth. It's his spirit that helps me live a a life on the path or the way. It's his spirit that enables me to do what is right. So he tells you, here's what it looks like to live a life in the flesh, and here's what it looks like to live in the spirit. And he can contrast these two competing views. So look what he says about the flesh. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual, immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. These I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. What he's saying is a consistent pattern of living in the old nature, but claiming that you know Christ is not consistent with a life of being set free from sin. He goes, there's got to be a point where you examine the, the breadcrumbs of your faith and you do an inspection of the fruit in your life. There's a point where you see what it looks like to know Christ. He then gives us what it looks like to live in Christ in verse 22. And he says, but the fruit of the Spirit, which looks totally different, he says is love and joy and peace patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And I love verse 23 because he says, and against such things there is no law. Which means you and I don't have prisons for people who are loving and joyful and self-controlled. We have prisons for idolaters, for the sexually immoral, for the wicked, for for the slanderer, for the one that is corrupt in their flesh, not controlled by the Spirit. So I would tell you, that's what separates most people from walking in Christ and in freedom, and that is their flesh. And so we are not to be controlled by the flesh. That's why Paul says this in verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another or envying one another. Paul is saying this is what it looks like to walk in Christ, to be a new person. Understand? If you understand, everybody say capiche. Good, there we go. So then he kind of uh, helps us wrap up this thought in verse 14. And this is what he says in uh, Romans 6. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. He goes, sin no longer reigns in you. 
if you walk in Christ. Now, real quickly, I want to wrap up with this. When you think about sin will have no dominion over you, the question is, is why does sin sometimes have dominion over us? And I will tell you, it's because we have a threefold enemy. As believers in Christ, there's a threefold enemy that we are always competing with and will compete with until we are standing before the Lord in the kingdom. Until then, we have a competing problem. And that problem revolves around three things. The first one is the world. We live in a world that is corrupt. We live in a world that from the very beginning was enticed with three things. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Those three things are the very three things that Adam and Eve were tempted with, that Jesus was tempted with, though he was uh, able to withstand the test and the wilderness by Satan, is the very same things that Satan is going to tempt us with. Friends, Satan is not all-knowing, he is not all-powerful, and he's not that wise. The problem is, is that he knows that he's dealing with people who are weak and feeble, and that's namely you and I. We give him way too much credit. His plan has not changed. He's going to allure you and tempt you with one of these three things, which is, or all of these three things, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. That's why the Apostle John says this in 1 John 2, 15. Look what he says. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world desires the flesh, desires the eyes. The pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with his desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Friends, this world is not our home. For a lot of us, though, we think it's the monkey bars and it's the playground we live on. And, and I think what we just see here from the Apostle John, he's saying, no, no, no. Like, don't fall in love. Don't be ensnared. Don't be uh, enticed. Don't let your eyes, your hands, your feet, your minds, your mouths give way to the world. Like, we are living for something far superior than what we see now in this limited worldview. He goes, keep your eyes fixed. That's why he gives us a, a great exit plan. He tells us how to prepare ourselves for the world. He's talking to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2. This is what he says. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Here's what he tells Timothy. If you're tempted by the world and all that's in it, he goes, run, flee, move away from your youthful passions. And then what do you do when you run from youthful passions? You just run from the enemy? No, you draw near to Christ. How? With righteousness and faith and love and peace. With a pure heart, you call on the Lord, for He is near. That's the idea. So friends, our big part of our issue is the world. Another one, though, is the flesh. We've been talking about the competing view, the flesh and the spirit. But that's why we need to be just reminded in what Paul says in Romans chapter 7, which sums all of us up. Look at verse 18. Paul says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For I know that I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. That pretty much sums me up. God, I know what you want me to do, but I struggle to do it. Paul expounds on that thought as he 
continues in chapter 7, but the reality is that's who we are. We know that our spirits want us to go one direction, but we have a competing problem in the flesh. The old nature says, you know what? This seems enticing. I might go here. And when that competing problem happens, the question is, is what do we do about it? Well, we remind ourselves of what Paul writes to the church of Rome. We just read it, Romans chapter 6. Look at verses 12 and 13. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. How do you do that? You deny your flesh. Like there's a point where you recognize this is what I want to do, but that way is not going to lead to life. It's not going to lead to light. It's not going to bring peace. It's not going to promote joy in my marriage. It's not going to be a blessing to my children. The response that I have in my old nature is not going to be anything that pleases God or blesses anyone. And so at some point you go, I'm going to deny that. I'm going to train myself towards godliness. That's what he writes Paul to the church of Corinth, where he just says, listen, train yourself. He gives an example of a boxer. He goes, a boxer doesn't box aimlessly. He goes, when you throw a punch, when, when you give a jab, he goes, you intend to land it, don't you? That's the point. You land it. You run a race with perseverance. You set your eyes on the prize. Paul writes to his buddy Timothy and he says, what? You, you run the race, you keep the faith. That's the point. And so the only way you do that is you deny your flesh. So you say no to the world, you flee from it, you run from it. You say no to your worldly passions and the flesh that conceives uh, itself in us, in some ways gives birth to sin, and then sin brings about entanglement. Well, run from it, flee from it, deny it. And then you've got this other part of the equation, and his name is Diablos, the accuser, the adversary, the devil. He's the one that we give way too much credit for, and here's why. Because the devil doesn't mess with a lot of us. He doesn't have to. Why? Because he's given us the world and our flesh. I think oftentimes we think, oh, me and Satan won't leave me alone. And I'm like, I don't know if it's Satan in, in a lot of cases. I think a lot of it's just us. Our foolishness. I think a lot of us, we stay entangled on our own. He doesn't need to help us. So who is Satan, a person who cannot be everywhere at all times? Who is he messing with? I'm pretty sure he's in, he's in um, places like the White House or in government agencies or in places where he's limited to. I'm not sure that he's everywhere at all times because he can't be. He's limited in power and scope and time and place. But he does have a legion of people who follow him and they want to distort God's purposes and they want to confuse us. But they live in a world that is corrupted by sin and its deceitful desires. He's given, themselves, he's given a, a group, great group of people over to their flesh and can leave them there. But he is a real enemy. And that's why Paul writes, and he says this, uh, Paul, Peter writes this in 1 Peter chapter 5. Look what he says. He says, you ought to be sober-minded. Sober-minded means not drunk-minded. That means I'm not speaking specifically over um, drunkenness, and I'm not talking about um, the feeling that you would have if you're smoking some pot. What I'm saying is to be sober-minded, to be alert, to be vigilant. Friends, you are not alert if your eyes are fixed on the world. 
You're not alert if you're consumed and anxious about everything that's going on around you. To be alert, to be sober-minded, to be watchful is what he's saying, is to be a person on his post. Think about a person in the infantry that he is not to fall asleep at night. He is to be a watchman. He's supposed to be alert, to be on guard. That's the idea. What are we on guard from? We're on guard from the world and our flesh, but also the adversary. Because your adversary, Peter says, is like the, who, who is the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And why not you? But Peter, he says something here, which is really important. Verse 9, he gives a response. Just as you and I are to flee from our flesh uh, and to, to deny the flesh and the world, he says this in verse Peter, uh, 1 Peter 5, 9, resist him. Again, look at the, the theme here. Firm in your faith. To be immovable, to be steadfast, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. That's why Jesus says words like this in John 16, 33. Hey, you're going to experience tribulation of many, many kinds, but take heart. Why? Because I've overcome the world. It's an encouragement to us, a reminder to us that Christ is sufficient. That the world is not your home. That your flesh is not to corrupt you or to entangle you. That you can walk in the Spirit. And more than that, that even though there is an enemy, you can resist him. You can draw near to Christ. You don't have to live a double-minded life. You don't have to be um, consumed by the old nature. You can walk in the Spirit. I'll close with this story because I think it's a cool one. Uh, there's a guy named Carl Amberding, and uh, he, he wrote in Moody Monthly many, many, many years ago. As a matter of fact, this story was published in an old-school um, devotional. Y'all might remember it if you're growing up. Your grandparents might have had it. It was called Our Daily Bread little little thing, and they handed them out in churches everywhere, and everybody read their daily bread. Well, this story was in it. Well, Carl Amberding, many years ago, was at a zoo in which he saw a zookeeper go into the cage of a wildcat or a lion, and, um, and he went in with a broom, and he was sweeping the floors of, of the cage, and, and then he got kind of near to the corner of this, this uh, ferocious animal, and he kind of poked it a little bit, and that, uh, that lion reared up and kind of hissed at him a little bit and then moved as if he was uh, just kind of frustrated with him. And he went and he laid down in another corner of the cage, which Carl Amberding was looking and he said to the zookeeper, he's like, man, you're a really brave dude. And the guy said, I'm not brave. He goes, well, that's a really tame cat. And he goes, All right, that cat's not that tame. He goes, well, I guess I'm really confused because you're in there and you, you don't seem to pay it any worry or any mind. And he goes, and then you poke and jeer at it. And he goes, listen, it can't do anything to me when it's really old and it has no teeth. And I think that perfectly sums up what it looks like to live in Christ and to deny our flesh, to walk in the Spirit, and to not be overcome by an enemy who no longer has anything as a hold on you as a believer. Why? Because death has no sting. It has been swallowed up in victory. Christ has paid the penalty. He's overcome death and the grave. He was dead 
On the third day, he was resurrected. He gave us hope. He gave us new life. He gave us freedom. He gave us an inheritance that never spoils or fades away. He gives us an opportunity to be filled with the Spirit, to stand firm, to be immovable, to be steadfast. And there is an enemy who is real, and he desires to steal, kill, and destroy. But more than that, we have a shepherd who gives abundant life. Follow the shepherd. Listen to his voice. Follow his word because he's given us everything that we need that pertains to life and godliness. And the enemy that we have has no teeth. And you need to be reminded of that because our God is good and he's faithful and he's strong. He's omnipotent, which means powerful. He's omniscient, which means all-knowing. And he's omnipresent, which means he's everywhere. He is all the things that our enemy can't be. Which is why our enemy will use everything he can as a cunning, crafty, Ephesians 4, dice-playing cheater to pull the wool over your eyes. He's a poker player. And, and he'll hold an ace up his arm if he can ruin your life. Don't let him. Flee. Run towards Christ. Draw near to the one who loves you. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you, God, have set us free from the desire of sin, that we can consider ourselves dead to sin and alive in Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that our mortal body would not continue to give itself over to various passions and lusts of our past, that we would present ourselves as members of Christ and instruments of your righteousness. So everything that our eyes see and our ears hear, everything that our mouths say, everything um, that our hands and our feet do, I pray would reveal much about you. But more than that, I pray that those things would reveal more about our hearts and our minds and the very seat of our soul, the will, the decisions that we make would just simply help us to live as members of your body for your righteousness. And so, Lord, may we know that sin and its power has no dominion over us, that we don't have to live a part of the world, we don't have to give ourselves over to the flesh, and we have an enemy that has no teeth if we'll follow you. So God, would you help us to follow you? Help us to be steadfast and movable. Help us to plant our feet, to be shod, to be ready, to be equipped for battle as you give us the word of truth as an offensive weapon against an enemy who desires to steal, kill, and destroy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.